Hello, John. Hi, Dan Benjamin. How are you? I am spiffy. What are you up to? Well, let's see. I woke up this morning and I drove my truck back to the mechanic because there seems to be some kind of vacuum leak that's depositing raw gas into the cabin. Really? Yeah, which is uh, contraindicated. Uh, <laughs> like for, from out of the dashboard or what? No. Well, how would it get in the dashboard, I Dan? What, I don't know what you do. Uh, there. I think what it is is there is some kind of, uh, there's a little tube that runs from the gas tank uh, back up to the carburetor to vent the fumes if the gas tank gets hot, if the car gets hot in the hot weather. Oh, sure. Vents the fumes. We're talking about fume venting. Mm-hmm. And somewhere along the line in this 40-year-old car, the uh, probably that line is just old. It might have come disconnected, but it's probably just old. And yeah. now it's venting hot fumes into the truck, which, I mean, I don't smoke cigarettes anymore, so I'm... You're safe. Well, I don't know how safe I am because <laughs> uh, because my wit is sparking. I could blow it up just with a with a... With a bone mow, with a bone mow, I could blow it up. Yeah. So, yeah. So, anyway, I took it there. I'm going down to Los Angeles tomorrow. So, I figured I'd leave it with my guy. And, uh, what are you, you going to take down there? Or are you flying? Flying. Yeah. Flying. What's going on in LA that you're doing? Well, it's the Maximum Fun Conference. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Sponsored by, uh, by the internet's darling, Jesse Thorne. Mm hmm. And, uh, you know, I've never had a podcast on Jesse's network, but I have, but I am in Jesse's friend network. Right. So I go down to his, his con and, uh, and I pal around with him too. That's another thing I do. Yeah. He is very palable. He pals around and Hodgman is doing a show at Largo the night before. And, and then we're doing our, you know, when, when Hodgman was on the high, the high run there, the, the Mac ads run yeah he worked it out with them with apple that he would stay at the chateau marmont Mm. in uh, hollywood as part of his you know they'd fly him out there he'd stay at the chateau and then he got addicted to the chateau and he was very generous about staying at the chateau and he would invite me to come stay and then i got addicted to it but it's very very pricey even for a small room, it's very pricey. It didn't even used to be that pricey. They've just, they've totally doubled the prices in the last few years, but it's very addictive. Um, it's probably not even anywhere in the top 10 nicest hotels in LA, but it is, it's kind of decadent and slightly seedy. <laughs> it has a long history. So anyway, so like, it's kind of like you. Yeah, that's right. A decadent, decadent, slightly seedy. Seedy, a lot of lot of battle scars. <laughs> and so kind of uh, u- used and abused, but still still open for business. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Every once in a while you see the Olsen twins in the bar, just like <laughs> inside of me. I'm looking at the photos of it now. Yeah. And it's uh, wonderful. It looks it looks great. It's wonderful. It's like that, you know, Jim Morrison like uh, crawled around on the roof and Led Zeppelin <laughs> rode their motorcycles into the lobby and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. 
you know, fired a pistol into the roof. I mean, it's it's uh, it's very Hollywood, old Hollywood. It says that Led Zeppelin in relative repose after riding their Harleys through the lobby of the Chateau. <laughs> there you go. There you go. They're hanging out of a window. There you go. So it's nice. And and uh, so, John, you know, neither of us are able to just go there at our whim uh, anymore because the aforementioned price. And also, you know, it's one thing to have Apple pay for it. It's another to just, sh- sh- you know, a shill out for it. But, yeah. but John's playing a show and it's and right before Max von Connie, there's a we have a big party for everybody. I mean, when I say we, I mean, I'm just sort of, I'm just sort of the sidecar, but it's a, you know, being the sidecar is a fun job. It's not one I ever thought I would be good at. I always thought I needed to be the motorcycle and not the sidecar. But, you know, over the years I've learned to, I've learned to be the, uh, the sidekick as well as the, as well as the, the main protagonist. It's good. It's good for, it's good for a person to. To sidekick, I think. I don't think there's a problem with that, but I think it takes a big man to be content to be in that role in anything other than the spotlight. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess different people have different. I mean, there are some people who love to be the sidekick um, or at least to operate behind the scenes, right? I have a good friend, Peter, who uh, lives in, Alaska and he delights in being the kingmaker. He never wants to be the king. He always wants to be the chief minister. Right. And uh he was he and I got along famously because I love to be the king. And he would whisper in my ear and he would, you know, he would say, I know. Why don't you go in there and put butter on all the doorknobs? And I would go, that's a fantastic idea. And then I would do it and I would get in trouble and I'd come back and go, Peter, that was pretty sly. (laughs) I'm a big dummy and I went and did it. And now look at me, I'm in handcuffs. (laughs) And he would say, yeah, that's, uh, it's your tough luck, Johnny boy. Yeah. And he was right. You have to learn how to, that's the thing about a consigliere, right? You have to learn, you have to learn how to, how to manage a consigliere. You can't just take all his advices, even if it sounds perfectly reasonable, like putting butter on all the doorknobs. <laughs> right? That's the reason. Reasonable. Right? Yeah. Sounds perfectly reasonable when you, when you put it that way. But then you do it and you get in trouble and then it's like, oh, Peter, he was egging me on there. I have to watch out for him. Even though he's my friend, even though he's my, even though he's helping me here, he's also, he's also not above pulling a prank. Our first sponsor today is Harry's. Harry's shaving set. You know what? You know what the Harry's shaving set is? It is the perfect Father's Day gift. You still got time to get one. June 19th, by the way, is Father's Day. And if your dad, or it, it doesn't have one of these things, or if you are a dad and you don't have one, or your friend, or your husband, you know what? Forget it. You can You can give... One of these things to a guy on Father's Day, even if they're not a dad yet. Because they're the perfect gift. It's the perfect gift. Let me tell you what this is. Harry has decided that that you should be able to have an amazing shave without spending a million dollars on this. 
a great shave at a fair price, a close, comfortable shave. They, they send you this amazing razor, this beautiful handle, heavy, weighted, like what granddad used to use, five German-crafted blades. They've got the flex hinge. They've got the little lubricating strip, all the stuff you would want for half the price of the, of the leading brand. And it's not all locked up in a, in a store behind a cabinet. You can just get these things delivered straight to your house. But this, this shaving set that they have, it makes the, it's a perfect gift the way it's all boxed up. It looks cool. It feels special. I just gave one of these to my brother-in-law. He's not a, a Father's Day thing. I just gave it to him because I thought it would be nice. He loved it. The stuff that it comes with, it smells so good, the, the shave lotion and everything. You know, and you're going to get the best shave you've got. You wake up in the morning, you shave, and people are like, oh, Dan, you've got a beard. Well, guess what? I don't know, I don't know about you, but I still have to shave. Like, you sh- got to shave your neck, and there's that part of your cheek that you got to shave. So just because you have a beard doesn't mean you can't use a Harry's razor. You can't appreciate the kid. You can. They have different kinds of handles. I like the matte black razor handle. You can get these things engraved. I got an engraved one too because it's so cool. You should go check these things out. They even have a, a limited edition Father's Day shave set with the matte black razor handle, a chrome razor stand. They get that foaming shave gel three of the blade cartridges and a travel cover for 40 bucks. It's a steal, but you know what? Their regular kit, 15 bucks. So go to Harry's. They're going to give you $5 off your first purchase, but you got to use the code roadwork one word. So here's where you go. Harry's H A R R Y S harrys.com and enter the code roadwork at checkout to get five bucks off. Get your dad like something he'll actually use on Father's Day. It's awesome. Harry's. Harry's.com. Code is roadwork. I got arrested one time in a national park. And, uh, and Peter was there with me. He was not arrested. And uh, he was instructed by the, um, by the ranger to drive my truck. We were way, way up on a mountain and the ranger said, you need to drive his truck down. I'm going to take him down to the bottom of the mountain and put him in the Hooskow and you need to, you know, you need to come bail him out. And so Peter was like, well, Hey Johnny, you know, give me your, uh, give me your, give me your credit card. I'll bail you out. Sounded perfectly reasonable. Yeah, of course. Right. I mean, Peter had a credit card. Yeah. I mean, that was a big deal, but he needed my credit card. Oh, this was a big deal back then. He needed my credit card, which seemed reasonable. I mean, I was preoccupied with being arrested and with being in handcuffs. So I was like, sure, Peter, you know, my wallet's in my pocket. Mm -hmm. Take the uh, credit card. Go get the bail money. And Peter went and treated himself to dinner. (laughs) First. 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 Uh. While I sat in jail wondering where my pal was, he went and bought himself dinner and uh and made you know made a uh jocular video of himself sitting down for a delicious meal thanking me profusely for the for the meal and you know really ribbing me yeah. this was this was in the early days of of i mean this was a he was making this video on a large format vhf ca- or vhs camera so it took 
took a considerable amount of work to set up the tripod to film himself having dinner on my dime. I can't believe that. Well, I sat in jail. So this is the type of thing you have to watch out if you have a, if you have someone that you think is your sidekick, but mm. in fact, in fact is, you know, he's, he's keeping his own counsel. He's just biding his time. Or no, that's the thing. He never wants to be the king. He He's not biding his time. He's not taking over. He's just going to sit back there and he's got his own. He's got his own plan. Yeah, that's what it is. He's got his own plan. He wants you to be the, the figurehead. He wants you to be the front man. But he's he's got his own scheme. And uh, so you have to, you know, you have to like. Take his words under advisement. Right. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, I know. I hear you. Yeah. And, you know, if, if somebody were to ask me, up until very recently, if someone were to ask me who my attorney was, I would have said, Peter, he's my attorney. Even though there's no kind of law that I need done that Peter is the sort of lawyer for, he's a different kind of lawyer. But he'd be, I would have said he was my attorney of record. Sure. Uh, but, you know, now I feel like i have a different attorney now and and i think both peter and i are, are glad for that but you know that would have been one of those things where if peter was your attorney and he gave you some some advice yeah you have to run it through the filter one time you know like what's is this good advice i mean i know he knows what good advice is i'm just wondering if he is giving me that right if he's if he's has your truly has your best interests at heart I'm, I think ultimately he always had my best interests at heart, but he was also in it for a goof, right? So, I mean, I don't think he would send me to, I don't think he would give me advice that sent me to prison, but I think he might give me some advice that would be good for a laugh. Mm -hmm. That's why, you know, that's why you wouldn't have Peter advise your political campaign, probably. Because you're going to get up, you're going to get up at some speech sometime and say something that... <laughs> That's it. That's that makes you look ridiculous. <laughs> have you ever had a uh, Have you ever had a a, a sidekick, or are you uh, do you typically find yourself in the sidekick role? What's your What's your relationship to? You know, I like uh, I like to go back and forth between having a sidekick and, and being one. I think it keeps things fresh. I think it teaches you how to be a better. Uh, if you are a sidekick for a while, you get to be better when you're in the the lead role. I guess. Huh? I don't know. I like to bounce back and forth. You do. You like to bounce back and that's forth. Right. That's one of the things they say about Dan Benjamin. <laughs> that's exactly what they say. I, I don't usually do this, but I've started making a list as I, as I drive around of things that I want to talk to you about. Topics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, right now I have, I have two items that have, kind of bubbled to the top. And the first one is probably the most important of the two. Yeah. And I, you know, is this, a, are you cool with doing this? You want, you know, I know you haven't had chance to, to bone up on the topics per se. Oh, uh, if I just hit, hit it, hit you with it, kind of surprise you with the topic. You know, typically Dan, I'm, I have no, I have no plan of any kind or any awareness, even <laughs> of the future at all. Sure, so yeah, if you had just hit me with it without any, without any like preamble, I would have. Now it not. seems you're saying I built it up too much. No, I wouldn't have known any different. Okay. And uh, of course I, I always welcome your, I always welcome that your quizzes. Well, I want to formalize the process is what I'm, 
Oh, I see. Yeah. So. Yeah. By all means. So my, one of my questions is I was driving down, uh, 2222 today toward Mesa and I noticed that today was, it's a, it's a warm day and most people here in, in Texas have the windows rolled up and they're running the air conditioning. Mm-hmm. And as I was driving down 2222, there was a guy, a car in front of me, and I noticed that he had his arm hanging out of the window. Now, he wasn't doing the thing that that the kids will do where they're sort of hand surfing in the air as they go, you know, feeling the wind and, and, and surfing it, like doing a little snake thing with their hand out the window. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it, it was just sort of, it was, oh, it was hanging out the window, bent at the elbow, just sort of hanging. Sure. Hanging and banging. Hanging and banging. And I I don't, I'm sure I did this when I was younger. This guy, I would guess he was in his late 30s, early 40s, scruffy, had head, iPhone headphones in his ears. It was a Ford F-150, as you would expect. Of course. And uh, he was kind of unshaven. He had like a baseball cap on. He had a, I think there probably was a ladder in the pig, in the back of the pickup truck. And I feel like he's, you know, it occurred to me, I wanted to, I wanted him to, you know, to put his arm in and roll it up because I've read many times that about people, I think um, one of your favorite actors, Shia LaBeouf, LaBeouf. No, LaBeouf, Shula LaBeouf. Yeah. Yeah, I think I re- do. Am I recalling this right? That he was injured because hmm. he had a, he injured his arm because he had his arm hanging out and got in a car accident. Hmm. I I don't know. I haven't followed his uh, I haven't followed his injuries as closely yeah. as I should have. I try to document these things. So you were you're worried about the safety of this uh, guy's arm? Well, I, that's part of it. The other part of it is for some reason I found that I I did not. I did not like it. I didn't like that he had his arm out. Not because oh. I want to intrude on his own personal liberties, which it's his, he's fully well entitled to have one or even both arms out if he chooses. Sure. That's his, that's his choice. Sure. But I found that I feel like I don't know if it offends my sense of decorum in some way or if there's a deeper issue that I don't I haven't fully explored. But I wanted to run this by you and say, do you have do you have a take on this? Is there a certain kind of person who it's okay for them to have, like I was talking to another friend and she said, well, if he's, if he's a true Texan and is wearing a cowboy hat and perhaps if he's on property, meaning his land, then the arm should be out. But that if he's just cruising down 2222 toward Mesa, that he should, he should pull the arm back in. When you say, I've never heard that phrase on On property. property. That's a that's a Texan thing. I I don't know. She's born and raised in Texas, so maybe it's a it's a it is a Texas thing. But I think it, you know if you've got a lot of land, I see. You know, once you're on property, <laughs> you're on property. <laughs> you can do what you goddamn well. That's please. right. I see. You know, if it's your own if it's your own driveway and your driveway is about three miles long, then you can do whatever you want on there. But this is so I wanted to ask you, kind of like as a like a checks and balances. Is this something you do? Is this something you do you want to weigh in on this? Cause I immediately thought of you when I saw it. I'm not sure why. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I like to hang out. I like to hang my arm out the side of the truck. Yeah. As I drive. Uh, but I also am, I'm also, you know, looking around to make sure that I'm not about to lose my arm. Yeah. 
Um, the famous story that I think applies here is uh, about 10 years ago, there was a kid like drunk driving with his friend and the friend was, you know, hanging out the window and they uh, sideswiped of like a telephone pole. And you know, the, you know, the guy wires that hold the telephone poles oh, yeah. straight. Uh, the guy wire decapitated his friend. Oh, and the friend's body then slid back into the car. Oh God. They left the head in the bushes. The kid was drunk, drove home, parked the car in front of the house. No. And, uh, uh, got, you know, went inside and went to sleep. No. In his clothes covered with the blood that had, sp- <laughs> that had how spurt- could he do that? Spurted out of the, of the friend all over the inside of the truck. No. Yeah. My, I, I think this is real. I mean, that happened. Is, no, this really happened. And I think what happened was the kid was in such, I mean, he was drunk, but also like in such shock, right? You're driving along, your friend's going woo out the window. And then all of a sudden he stops going woo and his body slides back into the car and there's no head on and it's spraying blood everywhere. Oh my God, I think that that's that the would worst thing I've, I've ever heard. It's terrible. I'm sorry to tell this to you because it's a, it's a, it's a vision. It's hard to get out of your head, but I think that was, I, that would put a person into such a tremendous state of shock. What do you do? You pull over. It's, you know, like too late pulling over. Isn't going to do anything. So he just drove home, probably talking to himself or staring out the other window. I don't know what he did. He, he's, he's drunk, but not so drunk that he wasn't able to get home. So he must have just, his mind must have short-circuited. Right. He pulled into his front, the front of his house. He was like, I'll deal with this tomorrow. I'm going to go to sleep now, and, I, and, I'll, and tomorrow this won't be here at all. Like right? Scarlet in uh, Gone with the Wind. I'll deal with this tomorrow. I'm going to deal with this tomorrow. Yeah. And surely this is not as big of a problem as it seems. It seems like a huge problem right now. <laughs> right. But if I it'll be better in the morning. Yeah. If oh I get a God. little bit of sleep, it'll, it's all going to work out. And he just went in and went to sleep. I mean, I can't, I, it, it would be so unfathomable that I can't imagine. I can't, ima- uh, in a way, I can't imagine any other reaction. <laughs> just pull over and find a phone booth call the police i mean i don't know what you would do so i mean he was a friend was just as dead the next morning but that experience i think did put a little bit of a it put a little bit of a slowdown on how much of myself i was willing to hang out of a car and also i mean you've been on a train mm-hmm. and that experience of kind of standing in the door of a train or standing in the window of a train just sort of enjoying the the Vista and then all of a sudden a, a train on the neighboring track will come right by really close, comes right by really close and really fast and s- just scares the pants off of you. <laughs> and I'm sure over the years, because I've been on a, you know, I've been sort of hanging out of a, off of a train. Right. And then you see another train coming and they come so fast. You barely have a chance to react. And I'm, I'm sure countless, countless times people have been s- you know, there's enough space between two trains that you'd have to really be leaning off to get hit. But the blast of air 
I bet pulls people off trains all the time and grinds them up under the wheels. I mean, it's, there are a lot of terrible ways to die, Dan. (laughs) But so I see what you're saying. It's not safe. Really? It's something uh, it's easy to not do. Right. And if, uh, you know, if it affects Sheila Booth, then it can affect any one of us. Well, that's true. And I just actually looked up the story and he, he did this. He injured his hand and lost use of one of his fingers it had the bones crushed in it and he couldn't <laughs> he can't bend one of his fingers forever oh and, poor le beef you know the beef yeah the beef uh yeah i mean but, i mean do you have a, do you want to give a ruling on this well it's so relaxing to lean your elbow out the car i don't know if i would put my hand let's just say that don't put your hand out but if you put your elbow on the on the sill? Yes, I'm fine with an elbow poking okay. out. Elbow on the sill is good. Uh and I feel like if you're if you've smoked a little weed and you want to and you want to flip your hand up and down in the airstream <laughs> on a on a country road. Right. Or if you're a kid doing it on a country road, sure, that's yeah. part of being a kid. But like driving around in town in traffic, no, keep your hands inside the car. I guess that's my rule. Okay. And I I agree with you. Mhm. Mm-hmm. But it, it something about it, it just was very out of place, and I. But he may have been stoned, Dan, and and huh? and, and you you may not be. Uh, See, you but may he not... was also listening with headphones. You're not supposed to use headphones when you oh, drive. Oh, now that I'm one thousand percent against. Keep your freaking headphones off when you're in a car. You're a danger to yourself and others. I don't understand why he was doing that. Well, because they get, people got no sense. But I'm serious. There are people listening to this program right now who oh, are no. saying they're driving in their car right now and they have their headphones in. Probably, right now. probably that's how they're listening to the program. And I'm going to say, don't do that. Yeah. Hook up your Bluetooth mm-hmm. or whatever it is that you need to do. But uh, but driving with headphones on is terrible, terrible business. It's not how it was meant. It's not how any of those things were. Uh, if if you read the instructions, which I know Dan would encourage you to do. Mm-hmm. Probably says right on it. It says right on the car instructions. Don't wear headphones. It says right on the headphone instructions. Don't drive a car. You know, it's important. I'll tell you what's important. Sleeping. Sleeping is important. I just went on a trip last weekend. And to be honest, I didn't sleep like really great. The bed was all right. But you know, I think I missed. I'll tell you what I think I missed. I I missed my awesome sheets. Because I have these parachute sheets. And I'm totally spoiled by them. They're an online bedding brand. They're based in uh, in California. And they have a line of bedding essentials, everyday bedding essentials is what they call them. But basically, they're sheets. They got sheets. They got your, your comforters. And you will get a better night's sleep if you feel comfortable. If you have these sheets, I think you will feel comfortable. But you know what? If you try them out and you don't like them, they got, they got free shipping out to you. They got free returns. And you get to try them for 30 nights risk-free so you can rest easy. And they partner with United Nations Nothing But Nets. So they're sending these life-saving bed nets to fight against uh, malaria. The unboxing is so nice. The ordering process is so nice. But they say, the way this thing looks, like it looks like a gift. When you order it, it feels like you're giving yourself a gift. So give yourself a gift. You get a parachute home, parachutehome.com slash roadwork. Get your new sheets, your duvets, your bedding essentials, and you will get $25 off your first order 
using the offer code ROADWORK, all one word. So parachutehome.com slash ROADWORK, and then use the offer code ROADWORK. These are great sheets. You think you're on nice sheets now? How long you have them? 10 years? Come on. Parachutehome.com slash ROADWORK. Code is ROADWORK. I saw an accident today actually happen. It right in front of you? Yeah. One car, a, like the car directly in front of me. Was it a violent accident? I would say all all collisions are in one way or another violent. True. So yeah, but this one was, you know, I think we, I think the person that caused it was trying to just at the last minute get through what their their light was probably turning red or had just turned red and they were kind of booking it and coming around doing a doing a turn to get up onto the the right-hand road and mm-hmm. the person who was in front of me had slowed down in the process of stopping for the red light that we were approaching but the light then turned green before she had come to a complete stop so she, instead of coming to a complete stop, she just sort of said, oh, well, light the light's green and continued to accelerate forward and collided with the person uh, who was kind of ju- jumping just the beginning of their red light. Mm-hmm. Crunching and uh, no one no one was hurt. But the cars look terrible. No airbags deployed or anything like that. So whose fault was it, Dan? The person around the red light, which we've yeah. talked about, haven't we? Yeah, we have. Well, I'm just that's saying. that's one reason I I, I uh, despite wanting to very desperately I don't currently have a motorcycle. Um, because I don't want to get beamed by somebody running a red light and then be uh, dead, be one of the deads. Please don't drive a motorcycle. No, no, I want to. I love motorcycles. I want to have a motorcycle. I want to drive it into the desert in the night. And have a bonfire and shoot my pistol in the air, but <laughs> but and that to, sounds awesome. Yeah, even to get out to the desert, I would have to drive through the town and risk someone in a station wagon running a red light. Uh, I looked up the story of the kid that got decapitated, and it's even worse oh. because the reason they left the bar was that the friend was drunk. And feeling bad, and probably he was hanging out the window because he was barfing. Oh. He was sick. Where, where did this take place? I'll try and find it and put it in the... It's, it happened in Marietta, Georgia. Marietta, Georgia. Uh, he was probably barfing out the window, which, you know, you, you, you understand that. His friend was like, get your head out the window, don't barf in my car. He's leaning out the window barfing, and then his friend swerves. And, ugh. It's awful. Awful story. Uh, okay. Do you have other uh, Do you have other things you want rulings on? Didn't I, you say there were multiples? I do. All right. Uh, the next one I just have marked down as as a porn. Mm-hmm. But uh, what I I think the the background information for this was I wanted to know first when you were first exposed to porn mm-hmm. and when you think it is acceptable for a child or a young adult male to, to view the porn or experience porn. 
Well, as you can imagine, yeah, it's really more of an experience. And do you have, is the memory vivid for you? I, my, the first time I saw it is very vivid to me, uh, the, the magazine that I found. But I'm curious if you, if you had a similar experience. Oh, I think it's very vivid for everybody. Yeah. Um, and I have very strong feelings about porn in general. This is one of, this is one of the reasons we have this show. Mm-hmm. We've wanted, I mean, this is a topic we've wanted to, get into i think from episode one mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well as you know so i was born in the late 60s in the waning days of the johnson administration and up until that point uh most of the most of the magazines that you could get your hands on the playboys and so forth didn't even show pubic hair i'm pretty sure mm. Uh, up until sort of the early seventies, and it was a it was a big bold day when they did. By the time you know, by the time I was a kid enough to be interested in that stuff, they did show pubic hair, but not you know it wasn't uh, exaggerated. And the first porn I experienced. Well, so for instance, my mom bought me a, a subscription to Time magazine when I was about, let's say, seven, because I was a voracious reader and she felt like I needed to get hip to the news. And she got this subscription and she said, listen, don't bother, you know, don't, don't worry about reading everything. Just read the articles that interest you. And over time, you know, you'll start to read more and more articles. And sure. that's, that's exactly what happened, right? At first, I just read the sort of the, uh, the light features and the headlines. And then as time went on, you know, you, you're sitting there reading your Time magazine and, and you start to read other articles. But I remember very distinctly an article on... Evil Knievel. Um, and I think that it was, let's see, it was evil jumping the Snake River Canyon, maybe. Uh, and let's see what year that was. Snake River Canyon. Yeah, 1974. So I would have been... Is this the one where he... He didn't, he didn't make it. He didn't make it. Okay. He was in a rocket powered, uh, <laughs> rocket powered motor craft, a rocket basically. And he, he, uh, bailed out before, before clearing the jump, right. but it was a big, big deal. And there were thousands and thousands of people there to watch him jump, jump the snake river. And so it happened. Now I'm seeing September 8th, 1974. Okay. And so I would have been. No, is this the one where he just sort of he just sat, like he just sat in the. It was like a rocket. Yeah. And he didn't. There wasn't really much piloting going on as much as he just sort of had to be in. He just was in the rocket. Uh, it was yeah. It was on a. It was on like a launch. Like get a like ramp. on a like a ramp, right? Yeah, it was on a launch ramp. <laughs> And then it was, I think there was like a steam element to it, like a, <laughs> of course. Like a catapult, but then it also had a rocket. And I think if I remember, he just, something happened. He freaked off a little bit. 
or there was some reason uh there was some reason that he pulled the rip cord uh-huh. <laughs> in advance rather than um you know it's not like the rocket crashed into the opposite wall he just pulled the rip cord too early and i think it was because he he felt like it wasn't going off right but right. i don't remember exactly his logic but if it happened september 8th 1974 then it was what uh it was like one week before my sixth birthday so i guess i had this subscription to time magazine before i was seven i guess it was you know it probably was like a sixth birthday present maybe wow um and there was an article about evil Knievel jumping over the snake river and it would have come out probably the following week or whatever you know it would have like if i'd gotten the issue on my birthday on the 13th i bet you this was this article was in it made a lasting impression on me let's say and there was a picture of the crowd and in the picture of the crowd, there was a girl sitting on her boyfriend's shoulders in a pair of je- cut off jean shorts and no top. And it, I think they were the first photographic boobs I'd seen. And I <laughs> took the magazine to my mom and I was like, what is going on here? And she said, oh, well, at rock concerts and big events like that in the summer sun, a lot of girls take their tops off because they're just having fun being free at the big party. Yeah. And I was like, huh, all right. (laughs) Seemed that was acceptable, but I studied that photograph quite a bit. Of course. And then shortly thereafter, I have to think within the year, you know, we didn't have a ton of, I mean, we had a lot of books in my house, but when you think about it now, it wasn't a lot of books. Books were expensive. But at some point in, I think, when I was born, my dad and mom bought a set of encyclopedias, Encyclopedia Britannicas, and an entire set of them. That was a big investment. Oh, yeah. And so we had a set of 1968 Encyclopedia Britannicas that were just these big, beautiful books with gold leaf uh, on the, on the uh, front of the, or, you know, on the, on the edge of the paper. Like they were a gorgeous set of encyclopedias. They probably were a foot high. And then in this bookshelf, there were a lot of other things, magazines and, and, and other books. And I knew every book in the bookshelf. Yeah. Right. I I combed through them all. I knew where things went and I would go sit and read the encyclopedias. And that was kind of my, like when I wanted to be alone, I would go, sequester myself with an encyclopedia and just kind of follow the, just like we do on Wikipedia now, follow the links, reading something on on gold mining. And then it links to the department of the interior. Right. And I'm not sure I read about the the department of interior so enthusiastically then, but you'd find, you know, you'd find a path. Anyway, one day I was in there going through the encyclopedias and there was something out of place in the bookshelf. Okay. And I pulled this thing that was out of place out of there thinking, what's going on here? Uh-huh. And it was a playboy and a playgirl. Both. Together. <laughs> and I thought <laughs> in my seven year old's mind, right. I was like, 
<laughs> My goodness. Uh, what a bounty. <laughs> right. I'd better get these out of here before anybody sees. <laughs> now, it did not cross my mind how they arrived. Right, right, right. Who cares? Right? I mean, it was just like, these are here. Yeah, now, they're and here, need, but not for long. I need to get these out of here before my mom finds them. Yeah. And so I took them, and here we go. We're going to, you know, this is this is fascinating. It never occurred to me to do this uh, because it just never did. But now I'm able to actually date all of these experiences because the uh, because the play girl. Are uh, you thinking are, you can actually figure out who was, was not the Burt Reynolds one? It was the Burt Reynolds. Oh no! <laughs> and and now I'm now now I'm very confused because the Burt Reynolds one was in 1972, which would have been a long time before this. So either my mom, I don't know how she acquired this Burt Reynolds one. I think every woman had a copy. Well, but I'm not sure that my mom would have. But maybe, uh, maybe that's what it. Maybe that's what it was. It was somebody had given it to her as a gift, or she sure. had purchased she, they, it. Someone knew she needed to have it, and they did what was right. And she then gifted me this Burt Reynolds uh, <laughs> Playgirl <laughs> as a way of sort of. Uh, well, and so anyway, I knew who Burt Reynolds was um, at this point because it was not 1972; it was 1977. Uh huh. Or 76. And uh, so I, you know, I studied that pretty carefully and the Playboy pretty carefully. Um, and, you know, they were pretty soft, pretty soft core. Mm -hmm. So they were, you know, they were instruments of, of study. They were, I, they're infinitely better than the book uh that she gave me later which was like sex explained to teens <laughs> and i i couldn't i you if you had given me a set of tongs and a radioactive suit i wouldn't have touched that book yeah like she gave me that at some point like here hun here's a book about sex and i was like gross get that thing away from me and i put i think i put it on the top shelf of my closet i I treated it much more shamefully than any playboy because I did not want sex explained to me by a book written by some hippie psychologist. But anyway, that's my first exposure to it. And, and you know, so I was, let's call it seven or eight. No, I, no, I no. mean, do you think seven. that was a good time for you? Um, well, those things are not, those types of magazines were not exactly about sex, right? I mean, from, from the perspective I had, it was here are naked bodies. Mm -hmm. These people are, they seem happy. They are taking off their clothes. <laughs> they have clothes on and then they're sort of taking them off. And that happens to me every day. I have clothes on and I take them off. All right. And so it did teach me that taking your clothes off could have a component where there was a little bit of tease to it. Like you'd take your clothes off and kind of 
hat, take your shirt half off and then sort of make a cute face <laughs> at the camera. <laughs> and so I did for sure start taking my clothes off a little bit more like, hello. Oh, right. Like this is a, where some of your moxie came from. Maybe a little bit. I mean, there was nobody in the room. I would close the door and then I would take my clothes off, kind of take them half off and sort of lay around like <laughs> seductively. Like, what do you think about them apples? Uh, but, the, but there wasn't any, there was no like overt sort of sex about it. In fact, in fact, Dan, yes. in the Playboy, there was some sort of article and it was illustrated around the edges, a kind of border of little like not not quite Ser- Sergio Aragones style little uh, borders, but, you know, fairly sizable little illustrations of a of a guy chasing a girl around the edge of this article and they were both wearing socks and gloves for some reason, white gloves, white socks. And these two little drawings were sort of playfully chase. You know, she was running and he was chasing her around the outside of this article wearing white gloves and white socks. I don't know why. But it imprinted on me strongly so that later when I became interested in girls and even though I never saw this Playboy again, you know, I had it around for a month or so when I was seven and then it disappeared. <laughs> but when I was, you know, when I was first interested in girls, I really, really wanted them to wear gloves and white socks like nothing. was. Did you hotter. request this? It was hard to request the glove I, part. I think that I think there's I knew this is not something that I was, you know, mattered to me. Yeah. But I've known lots of guys who had or have a from our generation, especially have like a white socks thing. Oh, yeah. Maybe it came from this. You're talking about it now, and it's just like, yeah, yeah, fuck yeah, white socks. And I mean, not like there's the like one, like I'm more than more than just a few guys I've known have liked this. And it's not it's not white socks with uh with colored bands around the top pulled up to the knees because that that's mo- is, that is a modern thing. That's a great look. The soccer soccer socks. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I'm a big fan of that, but I'm talking about white socks just normal above the ankle tennis, socks, tennis socks or whatever. tennis socks that are kind of a little loose <laughs> and like falling down kind of like if you put on your boyfriend's socks right a little they're a little stretched out maybe they're not your own maybe they are your boyfriend's socks. Yeah, a little stretched out white socks kind of drooping around the ankles i just white cotton socks maybe just, they were stretched up earlier and now they've kind of slid down a little bit yeah they're your old socks yeah uh, and then, so in the eighties, when I had my first girlfriend, it also coincided with the rise of Michael Jackson and the one handed <laughs> spangled <God>. glove. <laughs> and so at one point, my band, the truly awful band was playing our guitar players, little sister's birthday party. 
And that gave me an excuse to go to the costume store and buy. I, I, they didn't have they didn't have sequined gloves on sale mm-hmm. at the time. That came later, <laughs> right? But they did have white gloves, just your normal sort of white gloves that you would wear to a. Uh, that once upon a time you would have worn with a tuxedo or something. I mean, they were they were not they were cotton. It's not like they were kid leather. But I bought a pair of white cotton gloves. And at this rock party, at the party of the truly awful band played, I wore one of them mm-hmm. on the left hand in sort of homage to Michael Jackson. But I had these gloves and I'm pretty sure I asked my high school girlfriend to wear them once. Mm. And she was like, uh, like all high school girlfriends, she was like, uh, okay. Yeah. And she put them on and stood there like, does this is this what is this is right. this supposed to mean something right and i was you know then i was embarrassed and ashamed and i was like no anyway never mind take them off yeah forget i said anything yeah she ruined it yeah and i've never revisited the gloves and white socks thing but now that now that you mention it well i mean it is 2016 that's barely edgy anymore i feel i feel like i should fly to japan i'm sure there's a whole you know there's a whole sub subculture oh, there. yeah White oh, yeah. socks gloves. But so that was so. So those magazines weren't about sex. I didn't have to confront the idea of penetrative sex or of men and women doing anything together other than just playfully chasing each other around naked, mm-hmm. which seemed really fun right. to me at that freeing. age. Super freeing. I mean, this, this was a. This was the seventies, so there was a lot people were were convincing themselves they were sexually free. And so it wasn't until I was probably in sixth grade and my friend Greg Burns and I found some dirty magazines mm. under a board in a treehouse. <laughs> Ooh, that sounds and, like a yeah, you know, like an afternoon special. Well, this is, I mean, you remember this. If you found a, a fort in the woods. Oh, yeah. You'd ransack that thing. Well, and the first thing you did was look under the board on the floor, <laughs> yeah. and there was always a dirty magazine there. <laughs> so these were dirty magazines, and uh, there was one called Partner Magazine, which was a swinger magazine, okay. uh, like nudist swinger magazine. And I remember very clearly there was an event that happened at O'Farrell's Theater in the Tenderloin in San Francisco, which was, quote unquote, a live sex contest where couples who were in a relationship with one another mm-hmm. showed up. They had little they had little uh, numbered tags on them. Like if like, you're in a, like a Boston Marathon type. Like thing. in a marathon, right. Yeah. They were kind of... Uh, the they were on garter belts on the legs of the <laughs> girls and on the arms of the guys right and these couples lined up and they were just regular looking people right not especially beautiful people right, right. and then each one each couple took a turn this is happening in ni- 1979 in, in San Francisco each couple took a turn simulating sex for 
the audience and a panel of judges because to have real sex in front of an audience would have been illegal mm. even in San Francisco in 1979. And then the audience and the judges would, would rank, would rate how well the couple simulated sex. <laughs> I don't know what was going on. <laughs> That's weird in the world, but this was a thing. Not only was this a thing that happened, but a thing that was photographed and then published in a magazine. And, uh, I, of course I read the article about it because I was very curious about what was going on. Mm -hmm. And the, and the, the magazine writer very admiringly complimented each couple on their, uh, on their prowess at looking like they were having sex. And then the final couple who, maybe not coincidentally were also the cutest couple. Mm -hmm. They uh, were, you know, simulating having sex and the writer was like, they were, you know, they were really clearly in the lead. And then right at the end, he, they did have sex live sex. Really? The crowd went wild and uh, he consummated the sex and they won first prize. Oh, wow. Which seemed like cheating. If I'd been in that contest, I would have filed a protest with the judges. But uh, again, that imprinted on me because A, I still, every time I drive by O'Farrell's Theater, which is still there, I go, I've never been in it. I really should go. But I drive by and I'm like, yep, I know a lot about what goes on in there. Back in 1979, like I still, I see it every time I'm in San Francisco and I, and I remember this article, but also I, I developed the idea that one of the things you did when you were a couple is maybe sometimes you went down to the local club and <laughs> pretended to have sex for an audience. Did you ever fact check any of this stuff? Like ask, ask a older friend or a cousin or your parents or anything? You got an uncle? Oh, no, it was in a magazine. So it had to be real. Well, I mean, it was a real magazine and, yeah. it, and by the photographs, you knew that this was, it wasn't staged. You know what I mean? Like you develop pretty early an ability to look at a, at a porn scenario mm -hmm. and say, yeah, right. She, she called the pizza delivery guy and here he is with a pizza. Right. And she greets him at the door in a, in a little nighty. You won't believe what happens next. Mm -hmm. Right. You're not fooled by those. No. But this was, you know, like one of, I'm pretty sure in the partner magazine story, one of the girls was missing one of her front teeth. I mean, they, <laughs> it was a little, it was a little rough around the edges. It was not staged. No. And partner magazine, not, not staged. That wasn't its gig at all. Partner so, magazine. Yeah. So that was, that was my introduction to like, a slight, slightly dirtier world. And, um, and it went right to, it wasn't like, Oh, now, you know, now I found some copies of we or Sherry. It was right to let's look at, at, uh, <laughs> at some, some pretty hardcore people doing some weird shit. It wasn't hardcore shit. It was just weird. Yeah. And I like, 
yeah, I don't have to explain it. <laughs> it's self-explanatory. That that was a weird magazine. And oh, and all of this, Dan, is before I ever masturbated, right? So this is all happening in that weird space of like, I want to look at porno magazines for some reason. Right. But I don't, you know, there's, but why? there's nothing, there's but nothing why? to do with it. Yeah. Well, why do I like this magazine so much? Oh, look at this. You can find partner magazines on the internet and they are, I mean, this one from January, 1979 is fucking $25. Oh, really? Like you could buy it. And well, have the actual... No, sadly, they are out of stock here at oldmags.com. Oh. Oh, wait, there's one. July 1979. I bet you if I if I went through these partner magazines, here's... Oh, Margot Hemingway. <laughs> what? I have, not, I have not thought of these or seen these in 40 years. But uh, but yeah, here they are. And I'm pretty sure, so looking at these ones from 1979, I think my partner magazines were already several years old for them to be under a board in a treehouse. Because I would have discovered them in about November of 1979, yeah. right? So, so yeah. So obviously you're not asking this question just... Theoretically, because you have a, uh, a boy. And so what, what's your plan on these matters? Well, I'm asking because I have no plan yet. I see. I see. And you suspect that he is still pre porn. I know. I know that he, well, I mean, I can't say I know I, because what, what do we know? What do we really know in life? Well, I'm as much as I can know anything, I think. I think that he is. I remember I somehow at some point I had seen boobs probably, you know, at an, at an early age, single digit age yeah, in a magazine or something. But I remember one day I was 10 years old and it was the morning and I was getting on the bus to go to school and we had the, you know, the bus stop. And I remember I looked out the bus window, not that far from where I was getting picked up, and I looked down and I saw what Im- immediately registered as a dirty magazine. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I remember it was it was thick, like a regular magazine, like your your Time magazine. What does that have in it? Like forty pages, fifty pages. You know what I mean? Like it was a that's a regular mag. This was like a quarter of a phone book or something you know like right. it was it had a thick uh you know it was bound and in, in in a way that like a phone book is is bound the thick edge to it and i was like yep. oh, okay and i just i remember looking down out of the window on the bus and seeing this almost out of the corner of my eye and looking at it and seeing the pages sort of flipping in the in the wind from the cars driving by it was kind of in the middle of the road this was just in the middle of the road. In the middle of the road. Like someone had been driving by at night and flung it out their car window uh-huh. and kept going. And uh, I, I think on the way home, yeah, I think, I think I had gotten picked up from school that day and my parents were driving and I remember thinking, okay, you know, like, is it still going to be there? Is it still going to be uh-huh. there? Is it still going to be there? 
And I looked out the window as we were driving by it, and it was still there after school. No one had taken it. And, you know, normally I get home from school, my mom be like, what do you want for a snack? And I'm like, oh, I think I want, you know, maybe maybe half fluff or not or ma, you know, or whatever. Fruit roll-ups. Yeah, and uh, a Capri Sun, please. And instead on this day, I'm like, Nothing. I'm just going to go out and play. <laughs> and she's like, like, okay. Yeah. You know, I'm like, okay, bye. You know, and bye. I, I ran and I ran, I sprinted out to this thing and it was still there. And I, uh, I, I, I grabbed this thing and I ran to like, you know, like the, the corner of the little development and just started like, I couldn't believe that this was like, this was like, this was a jackpot. You know, this is what I think I'd been waiting for my whole life. Waiting for this, something like this to happen to me. And I flipped through the pages and I'm like, yeah, this is what it is. It is what it is, you know? <laughs> and uh, I'm like, all right, you know, like, and, and I can tell you that I don't know what year this would have been. I mean, early, early eighties, the stuff that I saw in that magazine still it would hold up to what we can find on the internet these days. Like this was advanced. This was an advanced magazine. This was not a gentle introduction to sexual intercourse between consenting adults. I think everyone in there was probably consenting, but there was, this was, had everything in it, everything yeah. and anything. Right. Um, anything that, that two consenting adults would want to do with and to each other. This was in the magazine. And, and how, how did this affect you? I I was very happy that I had found this thing. And I took it and I... Uh, this story has a sad ending, though. Uh-oh. But I had, you know, I had had a little bit of time to look at it. I'm like, well, I can't, like, hunker down in the woods out of here with it. I've got to get... i got to get back. Right. And I was kind of hungry. Sure. So... I forget how I did it, but I smuggled this thing back into my house. Right. You tucked it under your shirt. I tucked it under a shirt or something like that. And then, uh, of course, you know, you get back in the house. I'm like, well, you know, now now I need to spend some real time, some quality time with this magazine. Sure. And, and like you, this was pre-masturbation, so I wasn't sure... Like I wasn't, I didn't have a mission. Like I wasn't taking this back to, you know, go and take care of business. I was doing this because I very much wanted to learn. This was a very much like a learning experience for me. Sure. Soak it up. Soak it up. And so I, I took it back into my room and shut the door. Probably locked the door. Now this is very odd behavior for, you know, for a 10 year old to have, nine year old, 10 year old to have. Well, wait a minute. This is odd behavior for a nine or 10 year old or odd behavior for you for me. at nine or 10. Yeah. Because like you, you get home immediately, you run out the door and you run back in and go in your own room, and shut the door. Like there's something's up. Oh, you think from the perspective of your mother? Yes. She, she notices something. Yes. Not, not something weird for a, a 10 year old to do. No, that's very normal. But it was from my parents' standpoint, I was doing, I was acting strangely. Right. <laughs> so, uh, I, I don't know how many minutes I had alone with the magazine. It was not, whatever it was, was not enough. 
Right. Uh, but I hear a knock on the door. Uh-oh, uh-oh. And it was my stepdad. Oh. My mom would, had been remarried, and she was remarried for a couple years. And unfortunately, this took place during that time. If it had just been my mom, I could have I could have easily kept the whole magazine, kept it and uh, under wraps. Uh-oh. So I thought, oh, I, I've, I've been found out. Some, yeah. This is... The shit has hit the fan, and I'm. This is the end. Busted. So I ripped about a third of the magazine off, and I shoved it under my mattress, and then I hid the magazine just like under a pillow. Right. And I went to the door, and my stepdad walks in. He says, "All right, where is it?" Whoa. And I'm like, "Where's what?" And he's like. Dirty magazine, where is it? I'm like, what dirty magazine? I don't have a dirty magazine. He's like, where is it? I'm like, it's here. And so he takes it out. And I'm like, I was so blown away because this was a guy, nice guy. He was like, a, he's like an English teacher. He's, you know, like kind of a little, he smoked pot, you know, like he, he was, he, he never really wanted to have a straight job, but he kind of had to have one, you know, and he most, he wanted to spend most of his time fishing, you know, and he was like balding and kind of paunchy and, you know, he was, a, he, he was a good writer, but like, this isn't where he wanted to wind up in life. And he was just kind of like a little, a little bit of a kind of a schmendricky vibe going. Yeah. How long were they married? Two years. Uh-huh. And okay. uh, and so he he was like, I I couldn't believe that he got this. Right. Like, how did he? You know what I mean? Like, like like me as a dad, my kids know they they could never hide anything from me. They know right. that. Right. But for him to just like, where is it? Like that was not. I I thought it beyond his capabilities. To be honest with you. Well, Dan. My suggestion probably is that he, along with everybody else in the neighborhood, also saw it <laughs> yes, in the street. He did too. And then noticed it was, you know, he like, what's the, why is the kid being so weird? And then he looked out the window and was like, oh, right, the magazine's gone. <laughs> right. So it, it, didn't, it didn't take perhaps as much brain power as it seemed to me at the time to have deduced that. But uh, he he did and i gave it to him and then he uh confiscated it and i'm sure threw it away somewhere and well dan but what a genius move to to rip it in half it was probably the smartest thing i've ever done in my whole life sneaky little move that i know and they never found it never would have occurred to me to like okay i know i'm gonna have to give them something but i'm gonna (laughs) i'm gonna grab i'm gonna grab some portion of this yeah because it was already a little ripped, you know, like they're not going to search for a part of it. It had been in the rain, you know, of like it, it had seen better days. And so I don't know. I, it's funny because like before or since I never had such insight to do something like that. Wow. Ah, uh, so yeah. So, so, but, but this thing served me well in the coming. I kept that thing for a long time. And then eventually, like, you would score 
like your your friend's older brother would have like a Playboy or something and you would get hold of that. But I remember and I know that I was I, I know that uh that it was older by the time that I saw it, but that Burt Reynolds, you know, that famous Burt Reynolds, I think I have a memory and I don't know if this is like I watch too much TV and I've started to co-opt things I saw on TV or if this is real, but I could, I could swear that I found, uh, then my mom had a, a playgirl somewhere and then I, I discovered it and I, I, but I vividly remember looking at it and thinking, why would anyone want to see a guy naked? Right. Like who wants to see that? Like that just, and I, I was like, why do they, like, I understand. <laughs> I remember talking to one of my friends and saying, I, I get why they have Playboy, but what do they have Playgirl for? Like, who wants to see that? <laughs> uh, I just, I, I was, you know, like, I was just beside myself. Like, what is that? Like, women want to see that? Like, that's weird. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think it is weird, right? I mean, yeah, just in the, maybe I was right. It was on something in the sense uh, that uh, I don't think they sell quite as many playgirls as they do playboys. Yeah. And uh, quite a few, quite a, uh, they do sell a lot of playgirls, but maybe not all to women. I, uh, I feel like in, in encountering people younger than me, you know, this, this is, one thing we talk about a lot uh, is the sort of generational divide between people that grew up with the internet versus people who were exposed to the internet in their teen years or yeah, something, yeah. right? I mean, you and I, Dan, didn't experience the internet until we were all already grown. Yeah. And um, interacting with somebody who's even 10 years younger than us, uh, the, you know, the gulf between our understanding of computers is significant and not, I think overplayed to a certain extent, like not so significant that it, uh, that it makes us incomprehensible to one another because the internet, our, our internets are the same, but, but the exposure to them from, from a young age, you know, it, ha- it, it does create a different relationship with, uh, with images and, and, the accessibility of information, et cetera, et cetera. But I think one of the most profound ones that we don't talk about very much, and I don't read about very much is how, you know, exposure on the internet to porn has affected the, uh, has affected people younger than, than us has affected their, their sense of what healthy sex is or good sex. Oh, for sure. And, uh, half a dozen years ago, the um, I think the millennial generation presented themselves as success uh, as sexually much more liberated. Right, mm-hmm. they weren't bound by gender normative uh, stereotypes. They were much freer with one another, uh, much more able to be affectionate without all this baggage. But I think as time has worn on you know, the millennials are experiencing a lot of sexual dysfunction just like anybody does. And, and it seems like a dysfunction that's of a new sort, right? It, it's not this Philip Roth style of uh, frustrated, unrequited sexual desire. It's a, it's different stuff. And I, I have found in interacting with millennials 
Let's just put it that way. That porn, particularly internet porn, but I think porn in general, I mean, the first time I saw a porn movie, I was a little, I was quite a bit older. Yeah. But like porn is fake, right? It's fake sex. And it's performed by professionals and those professionals have a way of doing sex and it's a way of doing sex that is specifically for porn. Right. Right. No one has sex like that. Really? That is, that is what is necessary. If you're going to do, if you're going to do sex professionally, you have to be able to do it for a long time. You have to be able to come on demand. You know, the director has to say, okay, now we've got enough footage. Now come, and you have to be able to do that, which is a set of skills, right? Yes. That's just like being able to throw a 90-mile-an-hour ba- uh, baseball. I don't think you want to throw a 90-mile-an-hour basketball. <laughs> but, and, and so, and people, you know, in, in porn have exaggerated genitalia. They perform sex in such a way that all of the parts are visible to a camera. And none of those are real sex ways. But if your whole exposure to sex, if you're exposed to a lot of it on the internet before you've had it and continuing after you've had it and it's massively influential on you, you're going to think that one of the, you know, that it's very important that while you're having sex, you maintain a posture so that if there were a camera on you, it'd be able to see everything. And the things that you're going to say during sex are going to be very influenced by what you heard said on porn movies. Right. You're going to say some fucked up stuff because that's what they say in porn movies. And you're going to try and emulate the sex styles of the people you've seen who are, who are doing a performance. So I do feel like exposure to porn does have consequences. And I don't think it's consequences like, like we used to think that you're, you'd get hair on your palms or that you would <laughs> be unable to, you know, that you'd be immoral or that you would become, you'd fall down some hole. But I do think it's, it's more a case of it affects what you think is normal. And then that affects your behavior. And then it, it becomes this sort of uh, reciprocal uh, like not desensitization, but just a different kind of expectation that keeps reinforcing itself. So you, so you have to break some habits. Like I had to learn how to have sex, right? We all have to learn yeah. how to do it. It isn't natural unless you're very, very, very lucky to have your first relationship be a magical one where you both are completely honest with one another because you're like, I'm a virgin. I am too. I love you. I love you too. Well, what should we do? We should try sex. Okay. Here's my PP. Can I see your PP? <laughs> oh, how do these fit together? Teehee. Like all of that kind of, wow, wouldn't that be amazing? Like blue lagoon style, learn to have sex business. That's not how it happened for me. Let's just say, right. I mean, you, the first time I had sex, the girl did not know that I was a virgin. I did not want her to know. No, God, no. Oh, so, God, no. So you're trying to pretend that you're not one. And, you know, she was younger than I was, and she was very confident. 
And I was like, oh, yeah, totally. Exactly. That's exactly what I was going to (laughs) do. You know, like not very good. And then having lost my virginity, I continued in that vein of just like, well, here I am pretty good at this already uh, with a succession of girls until I, I mean, until finally sometime in my twenties, I was in a relationship where there was a natural chemistry and there was some ability to kind of uh, learn, right? Like learn in the open. And that, and everybody has to go through that. I have to imagine. Yeah, I think so. Everybody has to figure it out and be like, Oh, right. What I was doing before was one thing, but now I have to, I have to up my game a little bit. And I feel like if you're trying to overcome some preconceived notions about how you're supposed to look and sound when you're having sex, you know, you have to forget a bunch of stuff as you're learning how to do it for real. And that's what I, that's what I fear like overexposure to contemporary porn does is it just makes you, you know, it makes you think that the appropriate way to talk to somebody while you're having sex is like, <laughs> I'm going to fuck you in the face or whatever, you know, like this <laughs> kind of stuff where it's like, what? Right. right. <laughs> I mean, try saying that to somebody. No, I don't try. You know, like that's going to be terrible. <laughs> and if, you know, the best scenario is that the, is that your partner is going to quietly laugh at you Mm -hmm. i mean if and if your partner is like yeah i guess that's how you talk during sex then you're off you're you're like you're on your way to not know not actually knowing how to have sex for a long time and that makes me sad well i was just gonna say it is sad and i think there there are a lot of people who are learning about sex through porn as their first kind of exposure to it, you know, not hearing about it from their parents or learning about it from a friend or, you know, sort of going through that awkward discovery process that you're describing. But like people who, who, you know, watch something on, you know, whatever porn tube or whatever. And like, this is their exposure to that. And they see it and they think, Oh, like the same way that you saw that, that, uh, part partners magazine. And you're like, oh, well, this is something people do. Like, there's no frame of reference for it. And if this is your first exposure or your only exposure, and you go there and you you look at that, it would it would only make sense that you think like, oh, this is what people do. And this is what I'm supposed to do. And this is, you know, this is what a woman is supposed to like. Yeah. You know, like you go into it thinking, oh, that that's what women like. Okay, well, I, I guess I can have to do that. And of I mean, course, I, it's more that was my that was my experience of that partner magazine, but it also didn't have a soundtrack, right? And it <laughs> didn't have there wasn't there wasn't video accompanying it, so I could right. sit and say like, oh, maybe maybe one thing uh, that people find attractive is that you're missing your front tooth, and maybe that did have a long term effect on what I thought was attractive because I later on did miss my front tooth, uh, and people seemed to love it. Actually, it, it was very successful. Uh, with the missing front tooth. But anyway, I mean, I don't, obviously like, uh, like sweeping generalizations in this type of thing don't work very well there. I'm sure there are people of all ages having healthy and gratifying sex. 
but there's just so much more exposure to images of people having sex. And so many of those, so few, let's say that so few of those images are actually naturalistic where people's bodies look normal, whether, where they're actually having normal looking sex, um, that it just is a kind of, it creates a sort of expectation and a, and a, uh, and a lexicon of sex that is, uh, that's uh, false, right? It isn't, sex is actually a thing you can be good at. People like more or less the same things. I mean, and despite like some people like it in the butt, some people like to get spanked hard. Some people like to really get spanked hard. But for the most part, what, what you know, the, the same things feel good and, you know, people from all around the world can have sex with each other and there's no, and there is a common language of it, right? Right, right. Like if there, if it, if it were just a matter of, um, if it were just cultural, then people from Thailand and people from Germany would have, would have a very difficult time learning how to have sex, but it's right. not obviously, no. right? People from Germany and people from Thailand turns out have sex all the time. It's one of the big things. There are, there are a lot of Germans in Thailand looking to have sex with people. Uh, so, you know, so I, it would be lovely. And I think at some point in the 1960s and seventies, there was a movement and this pro sex movement and porn was a part of this, like liberating porn was a part of saying, let's have healthy sex because in the forties and fifties, the presumption was that people were having unhealthy sex of a different kind prudish disconnected sex. So it was like, no, let's get it out there. Let's, you know, let's just learn to be free and have loving sex. Right. That's, that's what that stupid book. My mom gave me was all about <laughs> the, the one you rejected. Yeah. But yeah. now, but then, then, you know, then as porn became systematized, it was no longer about promoting healthy, loving sex. And it was about like, Let's watch this sort of like cartoony sex. And, um, and I'm, and, and I think it's because, I mean, honestly, I don't know. I have a, I find, and everybody says this, right? We all find most porn disgusting because it's just not, it's just not attractive. Like the people look false. The sex looks false, but somebody's consuming all that porn. Right. So it must be that within my small world, people want very specific things from their porn. And in the larger world, like all the, all the mouth breathers out there that are, that are buying enough porn to make it a multi-billion dollar industry, they want to see this crazy sex. I don't know. I when I, when I encounter porn in the world, I, re I reject 98% of it. Yeah. No, I'm Just with like, you on that. This is no good. This is no good. I wouldn't want anybody. I wouldn't want my kid to see this. I, I don't want to look at this myself. This doesn't like, doesn't turn me on. And when I Google things in order to find something that I want, like uh, sexy Zaftig Israeli girls, mm -hmm. <laughs> the number of, uh, the number of websites devoted to Zaftig Israeli girls is really small. And you would think in the world of 
in the world of porn, right? The rule 34, there will be porn for everything. Yeah. But there are not as many pictures of uh, chubby naked girls holding Uzis as you might think. Yes. Because why is that not one of the number one uh, like sexual archetypes? I have no idea. Um, and it infuriates me still. But, you know, as, as the father of a boy and having at one point been a boy, I know that he may not be on the quest right now to find porn, but he will be soon. Mm-hmm. And I'm not so much worried about my daughter because I have a feeling that she will be like, like most of the women I've talked to about this, where, you know, they'll, they'll see it, but they'll eventually encounter it. But it, I don't, I just don't think that they're on a mission the way that like boys can be on a mission. Oh yeah. But I, you know, you asked like, am I worried about it? I mean, yeah, in a way, I mean, we have, I, I talked to Merlin, uh, a week or so ago about how I had to sort of block my son's access. He's eight and a half to, I wasn't so much worried about porn, but he was watching, he, he, he gets really into watching these like game walkthroughs, like people playing portal and half-life and other things like that. Counter-strike. Right. He he gets interested in watching these videos on YouTube and the problem with some of those videos is that there people curse on them a lot. And so we don't really, like, he knows the curse words. And I'm not thrilled that he knows them, but he knows them. And I don't want him to use them. I don't want him to hear them con- in the sort of constant stream, the way that gamers use them. And also on YouTube, like, even if, if you have to, usually you have to log in to see legit sort of porn stuff but the thumbnails are still there and there's a lot of stuff in thumbnails i'd rather him not see and there's stuff that he's watched on there that you know wasn't porn and wasn't bad language but that was adult content in the sense of like you know amateur people who go out and like investigate aliens or bigfoot or something like that like Mm -hmm. they have a youtube tv show about bigfoot well you know like i I, I might might not want him to watch that because maybe give him nightmares or something. So I put this, you know, you can you can do. I used Open DNS for it, and Open DNS has a, a an account. You create a free account, and you can set you basically what you do is you set up the kind of filtering that you want on their website, and then you use their DNS servers. And if you use their DNS servers, it will filter out all the stuff that you don't want just automatically. It won't filter content from the standpoint of like it won't block bad videos on YouTube, uh, but it'll block YouTube for right. for him. So I've I've done that kind of thing. So I know that like on his computer and his iPad that he's not he's not able to see anything bad, whether it's porn or otherwise. But I don't know. Like I think there's there's nothing wrong with the whole porn industry being out there, you know. I think that's fine, but I, I'm worried about like, especially like what you were saying, like that first exposure to it, 
you know, like, like this is what people are going to see boys, girls too. And see this and think like you did with the, you know, partner magazine, like this is, this is out there. So this must be the way that it is. And how do you counter that? You know, how do you prepare them for that? Well, I mean, the other thing of course, is that I think most of most people's first exposure to dirty pictures and let's just call them dirty pictures. Yeah. I know sex isn't dirty. I am very pro sex, pro healthy, loving sex, but dirty pictures just, it just resonates with me. It's part of an archaic language. Uh, you know, when you're a kid and your friend shows you that you're, it's a very purient experience at first. You're like, <laughs> Ooh, right. Gross. Girls are gross, but you're kind of looking at it like, hmm, maybe they're not gross or I'm not sure what's going on here. And so that, uh, that performance for your friends of like, Ooh, but here, let me take this home with me. I feel like, I mean, I, I felt when I was first exposed to playboys, I definitely, if, if somebody had been looking over my shoulder, I would have gone, Ooh, gross. Right, right, right. It's, it, it takes quite a, it's quite a transition to get to a place where you're like, actually, no, this is not gross. I mean, maybe even as late as high school, if somebody had said, would you like this pornographic magazine? I would have gone, Oh no, thank you. But I was a little bit of a prude. Um, it's, uh, it's just like when you start to, you start to imprint like another magazine that I really enjoyed. Uh, I mean, I used to read not easy writers. Cause even when I was a, even when I was in high school, it seemed like easy writers was a, was a mainstream motorcycle magazine, but like some of the, some of the rougher motorcycle magazines of the seventies and eighties, I would find those and you know, the thing, cause that's the thing you could buy those and it was, if you went to a convenience store and tried to buy, buy a playboy, the, the person at the counter would refuse to sell it to you if you were right. under 18, right? But you could buy a motorcycle magazine and they had a lot of naked people in them. And so that aesthetic imprinted on me too, that part of having a healthy sex, because they were all having a blast, right? They were smiling <laughs> and they're, uh, and the ladies were taking their tops off and the guys always had their tops off and they were just riding around in leather and flipping off the camera and throwing beer cans at each other and having bonfires. Like it looked really fun. And it also seemed kind of sexy. I mean, the, uh, again, those people were not all classically beautiful, but it, it imprinted on me a little bit of motorcycle culture, a little bit of San Francisco wife, wife swapping, some great Texas dynamite chase. And, you know, and then of course in high school, I was actually a preppy. And so Molly Ringwald, right? Yeah. So you put a little motorcycle, little motorcycle gang plus a little Molly Ringwald. And there you got it. I mean, that's still my, that's still my whole vibe. Right. <laughs> if you could find <laughs> the, the perfect balance point between those two things. And I would much prefer that sort of, uh, I would much prefer that my kid or that, that people today also find that kind of goulash of sexual influences than just log on to some website, which is pumping a steady 
stream of sort of long gifts at them where there's no, and I said gifts where there's no <laughs> story or context. It's just like people within large genitalia having pretty aggressive physical sex with each other saying like pretty awful things to each other. Yeah. And then you're like, I'm done click. And, and there's none of that. There's none of that weird cultural story making about it. And then you kind of are responsible for all of that with your friends who are, who also have this weird, this weird influence I don't know. I was sitting here in my office watching people go to the Beyonce concert <laughs> and I mean, people have always dressed in revealing costumes. Um, to concerts you mean? Yeah. And to, you know, to events, but there was a, there was a, there was a degree of the, the just sort of casual porniness of, the vast majority of people walking past my office on the way to the show. I don't know. It just felt a little bit, just felt a little unfortunate given the amount of work that I had to do just to see and just to see anybody's belly button. Mm -hmm. But that may just be old man's old man talk. You know, when we're headed to a future where we're headed to idiocracy where you can have sex while the other person's on the toilet. Right. So, yeah, Maybe, maybe, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I'm trying to raise my daughter to be capable of love, which wasn't an element that was in my upbringing. Nobody was worried about that. In other words, they, my parents weren't even thinking about, I hope my son is capable of love because they're the issues that they were trying to correct from their own lives mm-hmm. were you know, much larger scale issues, right? Like I am not beating my child. I am not forcing them to, I'm not inflicting mental torture on them. That's my evolution. It wasn't, you know, they weren't in this thing of like, I hope that my child experiences human touch in a way that is, that feels familiar and, and not, you know, not foreign. Right. So I read some book before my kid was born about how important it was to have skin on skin contact when they're little babies. And I tried to do that. Yeah. And then I realized, Oh, I'm alien to that too. Like skin on skin contact is not a thing that I had very much of. Let's just call it that. Uh, until I was, until I was sexually active. When was the lap between the time I was born and when I was born, of course, they took the baby from the mother right away and put them in an incubator. Right, right, to get rid of the jaundice or whatever. <laughs> right. And didn't let my mom uh, touch me without nurse supervision for the first five days. Like, at what point did I have sustained casual skin-on-skin contact with anybody until I was 25? Because up until that point, you're having, if you are having sex in high school or or college, it's, it's pretty, at least in my case, was pretty perfunctory. There wasn't a lot of like cuddling. It wasn't until I was in my mid twenties that anybody ever cuddled me really. Certainly where they were, where there was any exposed skin. Right. So that, you know, that was definitely shaping 
right? That is, that affects my uh, interaction with people at every level. It, it may be why I feel uh, people are so uh, horrendous. <laughs> and so in the case of my own kid, right, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to have it be very casual. You know, like I, when I wake her up in the morning, I go in and I lay down and I pet her. I pet her hair. And boy, if anybody had petted my hair at any time uh, on a regular basis, right? I mean, my mom petted my hair, obviously, but like it wasn't, it wasn't a massive part of our, of my childhood where somebody just lays there and pets your hair until you wake up in the morning. Right. I wish somebody would do that to me now. Yeah. Uh, and hopefully all of that puts her in good stead so that as she, as she grows older, she's like, right. People touching other people is not a foreign concept. And so when, when she first sees uh, two actors having robotic sex with one another, she's like, huh, that seems worse. That seems worse than, than almost any other version of that. Right. That's not what I want. I want this, you know, I want, I want more, uh, like I just want more of the person's body touching me than just the genitals. And a lot, you know, a lot of the sex I see on the internet, it's the genitals are touching. Right. Everything, you know, in every other way, the people are kept apart because the cameras can't get in there. Which doesn't seem that rad. I think there's something, though, about, and I think you mentioned this, and I think you're right, in that the current generation, the millennials and, and beyond, have a much more sort of touchy feeliness, you know, that maybe than previous generations. I'm not sure. It just, it seems, it seems like that. But then they also have the whole, the whole Tinder thing. The sort of like, it's, you know, Wednesday at four in the afternoon and I'm kind of bored. Like, here's my location. And there's someone else using the app who just swiped in the same direction that you just swiped in. And like, now you're off to go off and have sex. Mm, Yeah. I mean, I, I felt like, and, and, and our millennium listeners can, can chime in here and, and correct me on this. But my experience of that from millenniums was that it, that it felt like a rebellious action, a rebellious sort of teenage stance, right? We're not hung up on sex like you, like the older people. We're not all worried about it. We're, we're casual and free. And that stance was very threatening to grownups, threatening it was one of the first things that everybody was so stressed out about millennials. Oh my God. You know, what are they? They're just like, they're too sexy. Right. (laughs) Or, you know, it was, it was a very good strategy for, uh, for separating their generation and for rebelling in a way that was in some ways consistent with the way they'd been raised. Right. All the, all the yuppie moms and dads all said, I want my kids to be free of, of gender stereotypes and of sexual hangups. And then when their kids were, they were mortified by it or they were forced to seem cool with it. 
because it was like, well, mom and dad, you always said that I should just be free to be you and me. And so now I have a boyfriend and a girlfriend and we are not all hung up on labels. And mom and dad were like, oh, that's nice, honey. Like really, (laughs) you know, it was a, it was a kind of a brilliant move and millennials are great at that. I mean, they've been, they were raised in this environment of people telling them that they could be anything they wanted. And then they were like, they called people on their bluff a lot, or I mean, they called their parents on the, on, on that bluff and they called the culture kind of on that bluff. But as we both know, and as anyone with any brains knows, 16 year olds, I don't care who they are, how they were raised. They're just not that confident. No. You know, that was much more of a pose. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and you, you meet uh, you meet millennials in the street, let's say, or in the uh, boudoir, and you hear their backstories, and it's like, oh, yeah, right. You were just as awkward in bed with people and not having especially any more sex than anybody else ever was. Um, but... Like they're just, this is the primary thing about generations, right? They're, they don't, they're actually meaningless and people are all the same. Um, so I think, I think millennials now that they're a little bit older are starting to wrestle with the fact that, yeah, there are, there are real desires. There is, there is a difference between being straight and being gay. You're, and not everybody is fluid uh, or not everybody can be fluid. There are obviously bisexuals, but like, it's not, you can, you can want to be fluid, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be fluid, that that's going to be your taste. And that, you know, as that, as that shakes out, as all that fruit shakes out of the tree and you, and you end up being, I think this is probably part of the identity crisis of uh, how that generation is going to progress because they're, there's much more of a premium on being free and cool with everything. And if it turns out, Oh, you know what? Like I'm a straight, I'm a straight and I am pretty conventional and I want to be monogamous and I want to be, um, I kind of only want to be touched a certain way there. There's going to, there's going to be a social cost to that. Yeah. People are going to call you a, uh, they're going to call you a square and they, they did that in, in our day too, but it's much more, it's much more, I think maybe more difficult now for a young person to express a preference that isn't completely open to every possibility. But I, but I, but I honestly feel like most people regardless of generation, you know, kind of want to be touched a certain way by a certain small group of people. And and that's important to learn. It's important to learn what that is and, and sort of be proud of it. You know, to be, yeah. because I'm an alternative rocker, right? Like I, like the expect, expectation on me was that I was going to be down for everything. And, and I have friends that are, you know, down for everything. And, and realizing along the road that no, I wasn't down for everything. Like don't put anything in my butt. It was one of my rules. Right. Uh, you need it. You actually need an identity card to even touch my butt. Like you've got to go through a pretty, you've got to go through a process that's more stringent than the TSA <laughs> pursues to give you TSA pre-check. All right. 
you have to do a much more stringent vetting process than that to even put your hand anywhere near my butt. Right. Let alone, and forget it if you want to put something in there, including like the end of a pencil. Like, no. No. Like, I'm talking about, no. talking about the eraser end. Right. No. Of, well, of course the, er- the eraser end. Well, yeah. Oh, except I know people that are like, no, the sharpened end. Oh. Right. I mean, they're, they're, I, I, have, I have good close friends that have had almost everything you can imagine up their butt. And if we get into conversation about it, they, they tease me about like, oh, you've never even had somebody's phone up your butt. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. I haven't. And then I tease them about how many phones they've had up their butt. And it's all in good fun because we're both comfortable with where we are on that mm-hmm. subject, right? Sure. But if I didn't know, if I didn't know what my deal was, and I had a friend that was like, oh, you've never even had a phone up your butt. And I was young enough to feel to still feel that kind of social pressure, you know, then I'm at some, then I'm somewhere with somebody's phone on my butt. And I'm like, this sucks. I mean, we've all had those experiences. Oh, of course. Right. I mean, how many phones have you had up your butt? Uh, none. Well, no, I, I, what kind of phone are you talking about? Like the old fashioned handset receiver one that like I, the bad phone style that now the more you, th- the more you say that that phone actually kind of looks like it belongs up a butt. That well, that's what came into my mind when you said it. I was thinking of a vibrating uh, flip phone, <laughs> but then I'm you know probably I'm much, more of a reason to to put that one up there. I'm much more attuned to the millennial aesthetic, right? Where the, the little thing is and it's yeah. rechargeable, as opposed to like, yeah, like a phone from a 1940s police station, <laughs> right? Made out of bakelite, which actually would. I mean, that would be quite an experience, particularly if there was somebody on the line. Hello? 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 That would that'd be, I mean, that's a real speaker in there. That would be quite stimulating. That would be quite something. But there are rules. Yeah, everybody's got, everybody's got their rules. I mean, what are, what's your number one rule? What's your number one bedtime rule? I don't know. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm married. <laughs> so I don't know if there are rules once you're married. You don't think? I, I don't would think, think it so. would all be rules. I would think there'd be rules up and down. Yeah. I mean, you know, like not rules like don't touch my butt, but I mean rules. <laughs> uh, yeah, probably that's a rule, right? Or an unspoken rule or a spoken or a spoken rule. And it could, you could come down on either side. I don't know if there, I don't know if there are spoken. I mean, I, I'm, Probably, you know, and I think there's people who are listening to us talking about our, our butt rules. And I fully, I fully endorse the butt rule. Mm. But I think there are people who are like, wow, man, like you're super closed on, you know, like. Yeah, for sure. For know, sure. There are people saying that. Wow. It's old fashioned, not open any new experience. Wow. Get that, get it in your butt right away. <laughs> right. Blow your mind. <laughs> and I know that's true. I know that if I were more, it open, would blow, it would blow the mind. Yeah. If I were more free, then I would be more free and I wouldn't worry about how other people are driving. Mm-hmm. And I would be, I'd be just Indian style on a floating carpet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm not. And it may be, it may be like rooted, which is a, no pun intended. Right. In, um, and my feelings about other people around my bottom. Right. 
but there it is, right? I mean, you, you set the limits for yourself that you, that you set. You try to, at least. I mean, people are always transgressing your limits a little bit. I mean, one of my old limits was don't get your face too close to my face. And that's not a sustainable limit. But that between friends or is that for your, your girlfriend well, for, time? No, anybody. And girlfriend time too. Like get your, get, you know, like, yes, we can kiss and stuff, but just don't sit there with your face right in my face, staring at me with your big sex eyes. <laughs> and then as time went on, it was like, okay, okay, introvert, like you're, right. you're, here you are with with another person like it's part of the deal you gotta you gotta get your you gotta shut your introversion off a little bit and i think that's probably why a lot of people want to have sex in complete darkness oh that's just dumb they don't want to be seen that's just dumb they want to have their eyes closed and just be in a state of like isolation tank but if you you know if you start having sex on with the light in the hall on if you start having sex where you leave the door open a crack and the light in the hall is on so you can kind of see the, the shape of the shapes the other and the forms movement. And then, you know, pretty soon you leave the lamp on the dresser on. So you're like, you know, it's soft light, but you can see the other person. And then pretty soon they're looking at you with their face right in your face. You're like, oh, shit. I like having the light on. But all this staring. <laughs> And then you go, actually, you know, the steering's pretty nice. You look in there. What's going on in that other person? Pretty soon you're like, turn the lights on. Yeah. Get them all on. And then you, then after you, after you have the, all the lights on for a while, you're like, yeah, maybe turn a couple of the lights off. It's a little bit bright in here. <laughs> it's nice to have a little, you know, it's nice to have some the mystery left. A little bit of mystery. You know, the human skin looks better in soft light. You just <laughs> don't see all the. You don't see all the scars. Mm-hmm. You're able to just kind of, it's, sex should be a little gauzy. You know, you don't want it to be like it's happening in a, in an operating room. No. And that's another thing that's true of, of a lot of contemporary porn. It's just like, it's, it's like happening, happening under the lights that they use to work on the highway at night. Just like completely blown out lighting. Where you go, I mean, this is, uh, uh, this is another thing. A, a lot of still photography porn happens outside now because it's cheap. They don't have to have a bunch of complicated lighting. They just take pictures of people out in fields. You see this a lot if, you, if you're looking at still photography porn, which I don't know if anybody does anymore. That's every, I think most people are looking at videos. But if you I look think at videos have totally taken over. Yeah, but if you look at pictures, pictures like photo sets of people taken outside uh, or take, you know, photo sets of people taken in rooms, let's say. I mean, lighting is complicated and bad lighting really takes you out of the scene. So a lot of pictures of people taken outside in parks. Well, I personally, as someone who has been doing this a while, I mean, how many times do you have sex outdoors in the middle of the day not very many times i don't think you have that very much you know like uh, in real life yeah unless you live on a farm on uh, on on property on property right right unless you live in the ukraine on uh on a like out in the or on the the bonnet 
right, or on property in Texas, you're just not going outside in the middle of the day to have sex. And if it's a nice day, you're going to get sunburned. I guarantee you, you're going to get chiggers mm. or, or ticks. Uh, if you've ever had sex in the grass without a blanket, it, grass is not that soft on your, on your posterior. Uh, bugs. I mean, you, I, I, and again, I'm not a hundred percent free, right? I'm not somebody that's like bugs. Who cares about bugs? Stick as many bugs up my butt as you can because I'm free. <laughs> so, so when you're looking at photographs of people posing outside in sexy positions, if you saw one of those a year, you might be able to engage your fantasy mechanism and say like, Oh, okay. One time, one time in the past year of fantasizing about having sex with strangers, I can imagine that maybe I picked up a hitchhiker or maybe I was on vacation and visited a farm. But if you are looking at pictures all the time of people outside, it's going to skew your sense of what an appropriate place to have sex is in the middle of the day, mm-hmm. in the middle of a park. Yeah. Um, and often in a, field full of blooming flowers where it's like I would be having an asthma attack. My nose would be so stuffed up. This would not be enjoyable at all. I can't even believe that girl is standing out in that field. She'd be having she, she her her uh, her glands. In other would words, be it's not a natural. It's not a natural thing. Yeah, right. A natural thing is like in a half lit room. And. Uh, you know, and the covers are torn up a little bit. I mean, I'm sorry to be so normative. Maybe the, maybe the most natural way to have sex is if you're tied to a burning cross. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But I, I know for a fact in my own experience here in Seattle of, of people that are really invested in the invested and vested in the alternative sex scene, right? The BDS and M, the right, that whole thing. There's a, there's a massive through line in the, in the language they use with one another about people that are having vanilla sex Mm. and vanilla is used very disparagingly as a, as a kind of state that is pre enlightenment, pre sexual enlightenment. Right. And, and if you're, if you're caught in vanilla sex land, um, it's only because you're living in a state of, you know, of fear or of, uh, judgment, right? Like fear and judgment. And I've always taken offense at that, uh, at that stance because again, it feels like a very personal matter of taste. And I don't think that BDS and M is a more evolved state of sex mm-hmm. than two people who love each other doing it in the missionary position, mm-hmm. right? Like being tied up in a sex club and um, being rogered by a piece of equipment that someone in a baseball hat made <laughs> in their basement while people applaud is not, I don't, I, it may be freer in, in, in one sense, but it doesn't seem like it's, I, I, I fail to see like in what way it's, it's superior. It's simply different and, and more to, to one person's taste than to another. Um, but 
perfectly vanilla sex can be as gratifying as anything in the world. Two people just having sex in a half lit room uh, can be can be a, a, as phenomenal as any experience. Sure. So within that, within those subcultures where sex is really uh, like a major identity feature, mm-hmm. that language was, has always been like, you know, it's a little bit eye rolly or a little bit. It feels a little luxury like. Because when they talk to one another about van- how they're, when they're so dismissive about vanilla sex, you kind of you feel like. Are you saying this just in case some straight person comes along and reads this website? Or are you saying it to reassure one another that that your subculture is cool is more punk than other subcultures? Yeah. And that's what it feels like, yeah. right? That's what every subculture does. Yeah. But but yeah, I am it turns out after uh, you know, throughout all my experience and all the people I've known that my taste runs pretty uh pretty like I guess I'm looking for a real connection with somebody and I want the sex to be good and for the most part the more equipment you employ or the more you're trying to uh, press boundaries that can be really fun within a within a a very trusting space. But if that's, if that's your primary interaction with sex or with another person, like like empty, right? Well, or or just like cart before the horse, maybe like, hi, nice to meet you. Uh, what are your boundaries? Let me press on them. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) I don't know. Maybe try and have like just good, simple sex first. See how that works for you before you're, you know, before you're all the way to like, stretching or whatever you're you know whatever you're doing yeah um i'm sorry that was maybe a little far for some of our listeners Mm. some some people might be googling that now no don't do that no if you don't know what it is don't do it don't google it um but yeah yeah i mean I, i i i've been i've been trying to learn about sex my whole life and i'm still learning about it all the time and uh, and coming back to things and trying to understand it, the simplest stuff better. Just trying to understand it better, and not in a not in a Sting and Trudy Styler way of trying to perfect it or make it into some part of a of a heroic practice, but just like God, how do you? This is so it's we spend so much time and so much energy, so much effort trying to accomplish this thing. And it can seem it can seem that that effort is like not commensurate with the benefit. You spend all this time trying to get sex for yourself. You make all these sacrifices. And then it's like, ah, oh, sex is kind of really all this effort for that. <laughs> uh is sex really worth all that? And I know a lot of people, myself included, who have gone long periods uh, where they were celibate just because sex was just not that, not worth it, not worth the bother. But it really is worth the bother. Ultimately, you just have to figure out like, however you, however your way is to reduce the bother, 
enough and increase the benefit enough that you arrive at a place where the, where, where the math checks out. And I'm still, I'm still, I'm still in that chase. I'm doing pretty good though. 